0: this is my song praising my Savior all the day long perfect submission all is at rest I am my Savior am happy and blessed watching and waiting looking above filled with his good inspiration crucifixion we believe that he conquered death we believe in the resurrection and he's coming back again we believe so let our faith be more than anthems greater than the songs we we believe in jesus christ we believe in the holy spirit and he's given us new life we believe in the crucifixion we believe that he conquered death we believe in the resurrection and he's coming back again let the lost be found let the dead be raised in the here and now. Let love let the church then love, our God will say, we believe, we believe, and the gates of hell will not prevail, for the power of God has torn the veil, now we know your love will never fail, we believe, we believe, we believe in God the Father, we believe in Jesus Christ is yeah. it. It's it's it. It. lift you high in the lowest valley yes i will bless your name Dwelling your house forever and bless your holy name. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In green pastures, he makes me like. So... i so-
1: Welcome back to Church Online, friends. We're going to begin today with our memory verse. We've been memorizing the theme for our global outreach conference this year, Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. You'll see it on the screen, and we can say it together. You can say it in your homes as I say it aloud right here. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation. Tribe and language and people. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. We are back in the book of John this week, and I just want to say thank you uh, for joining us. On church online. I mean, it's, it's really amazing to see the participation that we had last week. Over 370 of you participated in church online, and that is not representative of the many who were gathered together in homes that we only had credit for one view, though maybe seven or eight people were gathered together to watch. And so it's really incredible to see how the Lord is drawing his people together in unique ways in these days. We're back in John, John chapter 14 today, and it's, it's really interesting. I believe that when the Lord calls us to a difficult task, that that task is always better accomplished with the help of a trusted friend or experienced friend in the work that God has called us to do. it could be something as simple as a home renovation project. It's always nice to have somebody who knows what we're working on there with us so that we don't end up like Tim, the toolman Taylor. It could be uh, some kind of difficult assignment at work. It's always nice to know uh, somebody who's been there before us, who maybe we can go to for a little bit of support and ask questions about how they may have accomplished that task at some point in their career. It could be a lofty academic or athletic goal. It's nice to know that there's a coach or there's a teacher that has accomplished or been there before to walk alongside of and help us as we try to accomplish the things that God has called us to. And as we enter into John today. We're in John chapter 14. And again, this is the beginning of Jesus's farewell discourse. And as we opened John 14, three Sundays ago, we actually explored uh, one of Jesus's most powerful. I am statements. You might remember that Jesus proclaimed in John 14, six, I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Jesus spoke this verse in the context of explaining the place that he had prepared or he was preparing through his death for the disciples. And as we sum up John chapter 14, 1 to 14, we remember that Jesus talked about a place that was being prepared. Jesus proclaimed himself to be the way to that place, but then he suggested that there was work that needed to be done before We could get there. And what we're going to see today is that Jesus doesn't leave us on our own to do this work. The hope of today's scripture is the promise of a helper. One who the Lord sends who will be the continual presence of God with us. Jesus was calling his disciples to an enormous task. One that they would certainly be unable to accomplish without his abiding presence. But he had just told them that he was going away and where he was going, they would not be able to follow. So the question remains, how were the disciples to carry the work of Jesus and take the gospel into all of the world so that Jesus could build his church, even though he was no longer physically present With them. And that's what we want to explore today. We're going to be in John chapter 14, verses 15 to 24. If you would like to take your Bibles at home and turn there, I'm going to be using the English Standard Version of the Bible this morning, but you can use whatever version you have available in your home. John chapter 14, verses 15 to 24. And as you turn there, let's take a moment and pray. Father, it's in these uncertain days that you draw us together around the anchor that is the certainty of your word. And it is true, Father, that while many things are changing in our culture and our world today, that you remained unchanged. And what a great hope that we have as we gather and explore your word today, that we are not alone, that you are with us in this, that we can take hold of you, And walk forward boldly with confidence in the truth that we find as we explore your word together. So Lord, today we pray that you would help convict our hearts, change our minds, and motivate us to grow in a greater love for you and a greater love for each other. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 14, verses 15 to 24. If you love me, Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. As we open our text this morning in verses 15 to 17, we see the promise of a helper, someone to walk alongside the disciples on what God was calling them to. Now, it's it's interesting. Jesus opens this text with the line, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Now, I would encourage you probably not to do this right now at home, but if you try this out on your spouse, it may not go as well as Jesus had intended it to. You know, try the honey if you love me, Oh, wouldn't you go and clean out the sink? Or, hey, if you love me, would you stick a pizza in the oven? Maybe get me a glass of water. So, why does Jesus say this? What is he doing here? Let's think about what he had just told his disciples previously in the first 14 verses. Jesus had just finished communicating to them that he was leaving. And imagine the fear the anxiety the questions many were addressed in the first 14 verses jesus loved his disciples so what he's doing here is he's giving them an anchor for uncertain days it's interesting to me how over the years this particular verse john 14:15 has been used by many against jesus many would say that jesus is proving to be some sort of egomaniac with commands like this. Their arguments sound something along these lines. What kind of person would demand that people demonstrate their love for him by doing whatever he or she says? Is God playing some sort of maniacal cosmological game of Simon Says with his people? What is going on? Unfortunately, those who use arguments like this miss the love that Jesus has just demonstrated in John 13 and they ignore the love that Jesus demonstrates by going to the cross. And my question to them would be this. Did Jesus ever force anyone to love Him? And for that matter, can any one person be forced into loving another? The answer would be no. And what is often missed in those arguments is this little yet very important word that's at the very beginning of verse 14, and it's the word, If, Jesus says, if you love me, Jesus never forced anyone to love him, friends. You either love a person or you don't. And maybe we would understand it this way. If you don't love Jesus, then don't follow his commands. But those who love Jesus will follow his commands, And what Jesus is doing here in this verse is he's grounding us in where we should find our hope and our encouragement when life seems uncertain and out of control. When there's fear, when anxiety is abounding, set your mind on loving Jesus and on demonstrating that love by keeping his commands. Jesus's commands are not burdensome. And really, there are two big questions that stand behind verse 15. First, what does it look like to love Jesus? And second, what are Jesus' commands? And what we come to find is this church, that loving Jesus proves itself in willing obedience. No one has to love Jesus, but if we do claim to love Jesus as his disciples, then that love is best demonstrated by following what he has commanded for us to do. So the next question then is, what is it that Jesus commands Many years ago, author John Piper published a book that was titled What Jesus Demands of the World. And it was a great book that summarized the commands of Jesus from the New Testament and showed how many of Jesus' commands were actually grounded in the Old Testament laws. And inevitably, what we come to learn is that all of Jesus' commandments go back to one phrase. And it's a phrase that we dealt with many weeks ago. Back in John chapter 13, Jesus actually unpacks the greatest command himself in John 13 verses 34 and 35 when he says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So Jesus' new commandment was a summation of the greatest commandments that the, were given by God in the law. And we remember in Matthew chapter 22, a man came to Jesus and he said, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and prophets. All of the commands of Jesus point directly back to the singular new command that he gives, love one another. Now, I think what's interesting is that there will be many today even in the church, that want to scrutinize what loving one another actually looks like. People will invariably dive into arguments surrounding morality and ethics. But Jesus describes what this love looks like in both John 13 and in the book of Luke. In the book of Luke, we remember that there is a man who comes to Jesus. He's a lawyer and he wants to scrutinize the command that Jesus has given to love your neighbor as yourself perhaps later as families after we're done you could sit and you could read luke chapter 10 verses 25 to 37 to remind yourself of this scenario maybe uh, even act it out amongst your families at home but if you remember this lawyer comes and he he actually says to jesus trying to justify himself who is my neighbor and jesus's answer not only describes who our neighbor is but also describes how we are to love our neighbor. Jesus is is not going to respond here in the story of the Good Samaritan with <laughs> philosophical ethics or morality. In fact, the people who would have been viewed as the most moral and the most ethical of the day were the ones that passed the Samaritan and walked on the other side, not even being willing to lend a hand. In the lawyer's eyes, Jesus shows him that this kind of dirty, rotten, scoundrel Samaritan is the one who stoops down to love his neighbor. And in his love, he carries this man to a place of care and he bears with him with great patience and mercy, going the extra mile even to pay for his care, however long it might take. What Jesus is saying in John 14, verse 15, is only for those who truly love Jesus. These are not words for those who find the commands of Jesus burdensome, obligatory, or invasive. Those who love Jesus, friends, have been born from above. They've been born of the Spirit, not of their own will, but of the will of God. And as being children of God, adopted into God's family, they come to love the things that God loves and serve God as He desires to be served. We have seen... In our own family, just a little glimpse of this as we've added two new little boys, two new little little lives into our home. And when someone new comes into your home, they don't know the rhythms and the routines of your home. They don't know how to fit in. They don't know how to be part. And so they have to learn how to love. They have to learn how to receive love. And as they do that, a desire within them grows to respond and to reciprocate that love because of the love that they have been shown. And for those of us who find ourselves loving, living, and leading for God's glory today, Jesus offers us a promise in verses 16 and 17. Let's read those verses again. Look down to verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. The promise that Jesus is giving here is the promise of his continual presence. And the question that we might ask is how will Jesus demonstrate his continual presence with us? There will be a helper church an advocate, a comforter. The word that is used here throughout the book of John in this section, John chapter 14 to 16, the word that's used is the word paraclete. And our English doesn't really have a great word to describe what is meant by this word. So oftentimes we've put the word helper in there and scholars have really debated over what the best meaning of the word is, but it would appear that the helper, who actually is the Holy Spirit, will have some distinct roles that he fulfills as God. He will provide comfort. He will advocate for God's people. He will continue to advance the work of Jesus, namely the church. The helper will guide the church into the truth, as we see him described even at the beginning of verse 17 as the Spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit will also aid in keeping the church set apart, unto God, separate from the world. He will convict of sin. He will encourage. He will exhort the saints. In many ways, he will be like a coach on the field with his players. Many have even described the Holy Spirit as an emissary of Jesus. An emissary is someone who has been sent on a special mission as a diplomatic representative. And what is important to know from our text today about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is only given to those who truly love Jesus and are called His disciples. The unbelieving world cannot receive Him just like they would not receive or see Jesus. They would not receive or have part in the Holy Spirit. But the hope at the end of verse 17 is that true disciples of Jesus will know Him. And, and look at the curious wording that Jesus uses here at the end of verse 17. It it actually points us towards a reality regarding the way that the spirit was working before Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Look at that wording at the end of verse 17. Jesus says, you know him, for he dwells with you and will, will be in you. And Jesus is affirming his disciples here, that the helper is already dwelling with them. And we remember in these days that the spirit actually came upon people or dwelt with people temporarily to aid in the accomplishment of what God was calling them to do. However, the spirit was not yet permanently dwelling in people in the same manner that he permanently indwells believers in the church today. And so When we read the farewell discourse, starting in John chapter 14, we have to remember that uh, Jesus, he knows what's going to happen in light of the church. He knows that his disciples are going to be the ones that are helping build and, and lay the foundations of the early church. They're concerned. They're confused. Their great Lord and Savior is speaking about leaving them and going to a place where they're unable to follow. And what Jesus is doing here, friends, is he's providing comfort. Follow my words. Know that I am with you. And look down at this next section in verses 18 to 21. Starting in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Following Jesus' death on the cross, he was not going to abandon his disciples or leave them as orphans. He would return physically from the dead, appearing to them, walking with them. Jesus was going to come again and though the world would not see him, his disciples would see and recognize him. And through his life, his conquering death, they too would also have life. Church, we live and have hope today because Jesus lives. Jesus is drawing here from previous teaching in John chapter 10 where he was speaking about being the good shepherd and even though the good shepherd would face execution and death on the cross, Satan would not be able to snatch those that the Father had given him from his hand. Jesus was faithful to secure the salvation of the sheep of his pasture. Look at John chapter 10. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus says in, back in John 14, verse 20, in that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. What a great comfort. What a great comfort for the disciples who Jesus was calling to establish and lay the foundation of the early church. What a great comfort for them to physically witness with their eyes the resurrected, risen Savior, to know immediately beyond a shadow of a doubt that nothing, not even death, was able to separate them from His love This is what the disciples knew. This is the hope that they had the moment they gazed at the resurrected Savior, Jesus. What great boldness, what great confidence this would inspire and motivate. Even though Jesus would ascend and his physical presence would be removed from them, the helper would come and the presence of God would remain. Sometimes I wonder, what Motivated these men to move ahead with the great mission that they were given. To go into all the world, to proclaim the gospel in the face of great persecution, suffering, and death at the hands of men who hated their message. Some people argue, and I don't know how, but they do, they argue that Jesus couldn't have truly risen from the dead. And my response to that argument is what else? could have possibly motivated these men to lay down their own lives for the sake of this message? Why would these men be willing to go to their own crosses, face stoning, be willing to, to be crucified upside down, to be sent away to deserted islands? If what they said wasn't true and never really happened, would they be willing to go that far? Surely you would think that at some point one of the disciples would have cracked, but not one disciple ever did. In fact, what we witness, friends, is that we witness more and more and more disciples being made as we work our way through the New Testament. The church is exploding in all different places all over the world. More and more face persecution. More and more lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel. And guess what, church? It's continuing even still to today. We still have brothers and sisters in Christ who are disciples of Jesus who are laying down their very lives for the sake of this message. And we ask the question why, and the answer remains because we serve a risen Savior. And because He lives, we too have the hope of life eternal. The hope of verse 21 actually rests us in the face of persecution and turmoil and pain and suffering that might come as a result of the ministry of the gospel. Look at verse 21. He who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will Manifest myself to him. Jesus is with us today, church. He's at work. He's teaching us. He's motivating us. He's moving us. He's preparing us. He's training us. He's guiding and directing us, leading us into the Father's will for our lives. The disciples after the resurrection of Jesus would know this reality fuller and truer than ever before so much so that they would be willing to lay down their very lives to see the hope of this message proclaimed to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Judas's question in verse 22, actually, it gives us pause to reflect on the disciples' desire to see the whole world come to know Jesus. And it's interesting because here you have Judas's question follows a line of statements and questions from various disciples beginning at the beginning, really, of chapter 14. We have Thomas in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? We have Philip in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And now in verse 22, we have this giant question that Judas asks And actually, friends, I'll let you in on a secret. In all of the Bible, this is my absolute favorite question. In all of the Bible. And it wasn't until just a few years ago that I was really confronted with this question in the scriptures. I had read it many, many times before, but never truly confronted with its meaning until a few years ago. And, And really, it's a deep question. It's a fabulous question. And it's a question that should cause us to respond with great thankfulness. Let's read it in verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest or reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Now, Again, just like the text reveals, this is not Judas Iscariot. This is, most scholars agree, this is Judas, the son of James. the Judas that we meet in Luke chapter 6, verse 16. We see him again in the upper room in Acts chapter 1, verse 13. And to understand how we begin to unpack this question, we want to reflect on our previous times together in John and go all the way back in our memory and recall John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, there's this feast. And you remember, this is the feast that Jesus' brothers so desperately want him to go to. They're they're begging him to go so that he can put on a show and get all these people to see the things that he can do so that they might follow him. Jesus, however, determines that he is going to attend the feast on his own timing. And church, one of the realities of Jesus' ministry is that people always wanted to try to determine the best way for Jesus to reveal himself to others. And the world really had no idea that Jesus' revelation of himself was tightly woven to God's purposes and timing for the redemption and salvation of those who would truly see Jesus. And, And of course, when we think about this humanly, it, it absolutely makes sense in our human minds. Jesus, why not just reveal yourself to the whole world? What, what do you have to lose? But, but it's not our place, friends, to try to understand all the ways of God. What we know about Jesus' ministry is this. Jesus was perfectly, perfectly accomplishing all that the Father had given him to do in his earthly ministry. And we can rest assured that Jesus did nothing apart from God's will during his time on earth. Look at John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. so, It's interesting as we open up the Old Testament and begin to unpack some of the realities that we find there, we we are confronted with God the Father who reveals himself to whomever he wishes and he hides himself from others. There's some who God chooses to show mercy to, there's others who he hardens Paul actually unpacks this reality very nicely for us in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 9, verses 17 and 18, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he, he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. In not revealing himself to the whole world, Jesus was only doing what he himself had witnessed the Father doing. When true disciples are confronted with this reality, the reality that Jesus reveals himself only to those whom the Father has given him, then they respond in great thankfulness. Why is it, Jesus, that you would reveal yourself to me? I don't know. But I know that if he has, we should be thankful. But there's another practical reason here that Jesus didn't just reveal himself to the whole world, and it really relates to the ministry of the disciples after Jesus would ascend to heaven. Jesus intends to use the lives of men and women to reveal himself to other people and to build the church. Jesus is calling his disciples to an incredible task here. And we're called to carry his message of hope, the gospel to all of the world. And he motivates us to do this work by his own love, which he demonstrated by laying down his life for us. And as we are faithful to keep his word, he accomplishes his purposes and his plans for salvation through the ministry that he gives us. And so another Practical reason that Jesus didn't just reveal himself to the whole world is that he wanted to use that which was weak to confine the wise. He wanted to choose the foolish and the weak, the lowly and despised so that no one could boast. God chose to continue his work of building the church and spreading the gospel through broken vessels like you and broken vessels like me. 1 Corinthians Chapter, thir- or chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. And because of Him, God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus' answer to Judas, the son of James, does not directly answer his question, but rather affirms that Judas's proper response, our proper response, should be continuing to keep a focus on his word, so that we might boast not on our own power, but on the power of God as he accomplishes his work and his ministry through us. Now, there's This is the way John works. It's a beautiful book. There's something within Jesus' response here that beautifully harmonizes the 14th chapter of John. You have to remember back a few weeks ago as we opened this chapter that Jesus was talking about going to prepare a place, a place that his disciples could not immediately follow him to, but later they would. The place he was talking about was heaven. The preparation was his death and his resurrection. But now look down again at verse 23 and recall that the focus of this particular part of John 14 is the hope of Jesus's continual presence with his disciples. Take a look at verse 23. Jesus answered him, Judas, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. And so, in that verse alone, what we see Jesus doing is unpacking three realities for every true disciple. And the first is this, true disciples of Jesus are loved by the Father. The second, true disciples of Jesus live in the abiding presence of the Father. And the third, true disciples of Jesus are temples of the living God. Now... What is so amazing about this is that earlier in John 13, Jesus was leaving. At the very beginning of John 14, Jesus was leaving. But now with the hope of his continual presence in focus, Jesus is explaining to us how God will come and establish an abiding presence amongst his people after Jesus has ascended. All of this farewell discourse spoken with the church in mind. Jesus knew what was going to happen. Not only was Jesus preparing a place in heaven through his death, but through his death, he was also preparing a place in the heart of every true disciple where he would take up permanent dwelling. This is a beautiful truth, church. For us today, Jesus is still Emmanuel, God with us. And for the individual believer today, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And Paul, again, unpacks this in both the personal and the corporate sense in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul has the corporate church in mind. That's all of us together. And he says, do you not know that you are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in you? And then again, in 1 Corinthians chapter six nineteen, Paul is speaking here of the specific individual believer. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you are not your own. Jesus finishes his response to James, son of Judas, by reminding him that, I'm sorry, he finishes his response to Judas, son of James, by reminding him that those who don't love him simply don't keep his word. Then he grounds the authority of his words in the authority of his father when he concludes with this statement. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And Jesus' words are actually from earlier in His teaching in John chapter 14, verse 10, when He says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His work. And even further back in John chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus affirms this again. So the question is, as we approach the end of our text this morning, how might our lives look in light of these realities? And to be honest, church, there are a few words that really come to mind as I think about this text and as I think about the world that we're living in, in light of the consequences of the coronavirus Words that come to mind when we explore this text are joy, gratitude, love, comfort. Joyful in the reality that we serve a God who has kept His word. Jesus did exactly what He promised to do in John 14. He sent His helper. The Holy Spirit Church is with us here today. And of course, gratitude and thankfulness because Jesus has revealed himself to us. He's redeemed us. He's loved us. He's saved us from the consequences of sin and death. Love, church, that we can grow in love as we recognize that we serve a God who is faithful to keep his word. We can have hope in these difficult days the greater the sense of gratitude for the sacrifice that was made, the greater the desire to reciprocate the love that was shown. You know, we have a friend in our life who uh, at this point, there's a mentor of hers that's much older that lives in a retirement home who was a mentor of hers when she was younger and in ministry. And, and one of the things that she is doing in this season of her life is that she's returning the debt of gratitude that she has to this individual for mentoring her and investing in her life all of the years that she was young and new in ministry. And that's a beautiful way to show and to reciprocate the love that Jesus is calling us to. And many of us may have questions today like, How? Are we able to love one another and express gratitude in a time of stay-at-home orders and bans on social gatherings? And church, I would encourage you, things like phone calls, writing letters, they go a long way. And, and though we may not be able to visit in retirement homes, we have friends that are living on their own that may be lonely that would might uh, really appreciate or love a visit. Maybe even we could use technology to connect with individuals in our lives and show them the love that the Lord has called us to show. We can be comforted in these days, church. God has not left us alone. His continual abiding presence is with us. We have no need to fear. God is more powerful than this virus. We can hold on to the hope that even if for some reason in God's plan we contract this virus that God holds our future. Comfort in the reality that this place here is only temporary and we have far more to gain in death than we do here in life. Church, I would encourage you, don't live in fear or anxiety over a virus that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has already conquered. His abiding presence is with us He will never leave us or forsake us. And though there will be financial repercussions, repercussions involving our careers and our futures, we can live with the hope that God will sustain us and provide for us through it all. Thanks for joining us again today. Let's close in prayer. Father, as we go about our ways this week, might you cause us, to recall these truths. Might you give us reason to be joyful, to be thankful, to be loving. Might we know your comfort, Lord, and might we be able to extend that comfort, extend that love and that gratitude and that joy to those in our lives who may need it. Lord, I would pray that you would give us an ability to think creatively of how we might love our neighbors and love those who are in need in this season. Father, we pray that you would cause us to respond in a way that would be honoring to you and that would be worthy of the gospel, the good news that you have called us to proclaim. I pray, Lord, that something would be different in our response to this pandemic than the response of the unbelieving world. And I pray, Lord, that you might use our response to cause an unbelieving world to look and to ask the question, how can they be so hopeful? How can they be so free of fear? How can they be so full of love in these uncertain days? And Lord, we can only give you the glory because we can only live that way because of the reality of what Jesus has done for us. Thank you for the continual presence of your Holy Spirit who is with us everywhere we go, every time of the day. And Lord, I pray that you would challenge us to grow as we go this week and that you would bring us back together again soon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, church.